My name is David Sabatini. I'm a member of the White Institute and the MIT Department of Biology, as well as part of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the Koch and Broad Institutes. And as the second of a lecture series of three parts, uh, talking about mTOR and its role in the regulation of growth, today I'm going to talk about how the mTOR complex 1, or mTOR1, which is an mTOR-containing complex, is regulated by nutrients. mTOR1 is, is one of the main regulators of growth in mammalian systems. This is the process whereby cells and organisms take nutrients, convert them into biomass, and increase in size. And we really appreciate that mTORC1, as a main regulator, is greatly regulated by nutrients of diverse uh, types. The story I'm going to tell you about today has a number of different twists and turns, and also introduces the lysosome as not simply a trash can of the cell, where you break things down, but also as a signaling organelle that can sense things and send them out through signal transduction pathways on its surface. So the story begins with mTORC1. This is a slide that's relatively old at this point, from around 2002, but it indicates some of the big points that I want to make. mTORC1 is a large protein complex at the center of a very complicated signaling pathway that has many different outputs, some of which are shown here. The processes it regulates tend to be anabolic in nature or catabolic, and they tend to be processes that either use a, a large amount of nutrient, like ribosome biogenesis, or generate them, for example, autophagy. What has fascinated us, though, for the last 10 years is not so much what mTORC1 does downstream, although the third lecture I'll give will talk about this, but rather what is upstream of this pathway. This pathway is rather unique in that it senses such a diversity of upstream signals. Most signal transduction pathways tend to sense a related family, for example, of growth factors, such as the WINT pathway. This pathway regulates, it senses WINT, as well as many other growth factors, such as insulin, a large number of different nutrients, such as glucose and amino acids, and many different forms of stress, such as osmotic or energy stress. So how does it do that? What are the antennas that allow it to do this? And moreover, how do you build a signal transduction pathway to integrate such a diversity of signals to give something coherent to mTORC1 and therefore set the growth rate of the cell and eventually how much it grows and the size that it attains? And so this is the story I'm going to tell you about today. How does this pathway sense nutrients and how is this integrated with the sensing of growth factors? When we began this story, this was really a complete black box. We knew that it sensed a variety of different nutrients, but we had no idea for how this happened at the molecular level. I'm going to focus today on the sensing of amino acids, where we've made the most progress, but likely similar phenomena are going on with the sensing of glucose, although I won't discuss that today. So one of the early key insights came from data such as this. We initially obtained the, the, these kind of uh, information from static image, from static immunofluorescence images, but I'll show you a movie which expresses this well. What you're looking at are two human cells, two large nuclei are in black, and you're looking at the localization of mTORC1 in a cell that's been starved for about 50 minutes of amino acids. And when I start the movie, what you're going to see is the presence of a white uh, square up in the upper right-hand corner, and this indicates where we add amino acids. And you'll see within minutes, there's a movement of mTORC1 to puncta. So you can see mTORC1 is diffuse, you add amino acids, and again, within minutes, mTORC1 goes from a diffuse pattern to a punctate pattern. If you remove amino acids, it falls back off. If you add amino acids, it goes back to these puncta. It took us a long time to figure out what these are. These turn out to be lysosomes, and what's happening is mTORC1 is moving to the lysosomal surface when we add amino acids. As an interesting sort of familial tidbit, when, when I first identified mTOR as a student, my father, who's a cell biologist, said, what you need to do is to localize mTOR within the cell. This will teach you a lot about what mTOR is doing. I pretty much completely dismissed this, uh, this suggestion, and it turns out he was right. It turns out the regulated movement of mTORC1 is one of the key events in how it's regulated. So I should have, uh, should have listened to my dad many years ago. 
So from these kind of data, we came up with a model such as this, that when you add nutrients, in this case exemplified by amino acids, mTORC1 moves from an unknown location to the surface of the lysosome. We soon started to identify the components of this dashed arrow, and in fact, you could argue that we spent 10 years trying to identify what the components of this arrow is. They could have been quite simple. It could have been an amino acid-sensitive kinase that simply phosphorylates mTORC1. It turns out it's not. We have about 30 or so proteins now that seem to be involved in this movement and in regulating this pathway in response to nutrients, telling us that the cell cares a lot about this regulatory step. The first piece of the puzzle we found was the docking site for mTORC1 on the lysosome. It turns out to be these odd heterodimeric GTPases, the RAG GTPases. They're part of the RAS superfamily. They're quite distinct, though, and they're obligate heterodimers, which makes them interesting from a microbiology point of view, but very difficult to work with biochemically because they have two nucleotide binding sites. This is where mTORC1 docks. We soon identified other components of the signaling pathway, and most interestingly, we found that amino acids were sensed in the inside of the lysosome, so there was an inside-out signaling pathway. This really led to quite a bit more attention on the lysosome, not simply as a static platform on which mTORC1 was docking, but the idea that the lysosome was an active signaling participant. And now there's really an entire field of sort of organelle or uh, biology where people study what's called lysosome sensing or lysosome signaling. So there are many components of this lysosome-associated protein complex. We soon understood why this translocation was happening. It wasn't the RAGs were turning on the kinase activity of mTORC1. Rather, they were bringing mTORC1 into the proximity of another GTPase called the REB GTPase, which is regulated by these different upstream signals. REB directly binds to mTORC1 and turn on, turns on its kinase activity. So what you're seeing here is the rudimentary beginnings of a coincidence detector. Amino acids or nutrients put mTORC1 in the right location, the lysosomal surface, where it can identify of another protein, REB, which turns on its kinase activity. So the pathway needs two things. It needs the nutrients, and it needs the growth factors for the pathway to turn on. This was the version of the pathway about five or six years ago. We soon thereafter discovered that there's a whole cytosolic sensing arm, in fact. There's a number of other protein complexes, namely the gator complexes, which seem to be sensing cytosolic nutrients, and I'll discuss these in a little bit. Now, before I tell you about our efforts to discover the sensors, these were the holy grails for us. These would be the proteins that directly bind the nutrients. And none of the proteins shown here, and these are all protein complexes, so there's about 25 or so proteins shown here, were part of the actual, they were actual sensors. Before I tell you anything about that, I want to show you this pathway matters in vivo. We already knew genetically, for example, by perturbations of this pathway or inhibition of mTORC1 itself, that mTORC1 mattered a lot. But how about this nutrient-sensing arm? And we can make a very nice mutation. We can introduce a mutation in one of the RAGs that makes it constitutively active. And what this mutation does is not hyperactivate the pathway. So pathway activity is fine, but it's simply non-suppressible. When we remove nutrients, the pathway remains on. So it has normal level of activity, but constitutive. So what happens to an animal when you introduce this mutation? So we've done this in mice. Well, what happens is the mouse gets through development perfectly fine. It has really very little developmental defects that we can detect. But as soon as it's born, it does not survive. And why does it not survive? Well, it turns out that when the mouse is separated from the placental supply of nutrients, and now it has to make its own decisions as to whether it has nutrients or not, it fails. So if you take the animal and put it in an incubator without access to food, but it's humidified, it's warm, what you find is the mutants, the red line here, they die in about half the period of time than the controls, either the heterozygote or the wild type. And the reason they die is they're a bit like a runaway train. 
They're consuming nutrients, even though nutrients are not there, and they can't regulate their metabolism to adapt to this. And this phenotype, to those of you who've looked at the autophagy pathway, is very similar to what happens if you knock out key components of the autophagy pathway. Mice need to be able to break down their own component in this perinatal starvation period to be able to survive. And indeed, we can rescue these animals simply by giving them nutrients. If we give them glucose, for example, we can rescue them. If we give them amino acids from which they can make glucose, gluconeogenic amino acids, they can be rescued. Or we can give them the rapamycin to inhibit the pathway and to, uh, to allow autophagy to happen. Now, these animals, we can't keep them alive for very long by giving them nutrients or, infect, or injecting the rapamycin. But if we knock out one copy of that activated allele and replace it with a null allele to make a GTP over null, so that mutation we introduce keeps it in a GTP locked state, we can get adult animals. And here you can see two-week-old and four-week-old animals. Quite easy to genotype because the mutants are a little more gray. We don't know if this is an accelerated aging phenotype or a melanogenesis defect. It's not something we figured out. And these animals do not have a normal lifespan. They die somewhere in the four to five month range from what look to be seizures. And you'll see why that's interesting vis-a-vis -a, -vis a human disease connected to this pathway. So we don't have too many of these animals, but what we can do is we can take them and we can put them into a metabolic cage and ask, how do they respond to fasting? Well, if you look in this next slide, what you're looking at is the activity of these mice, how much they're moving around this metabolic cage, either in night, which is a shaded area, or during the day. And remember, mice tend to eat at night. You can see that the mutants are dramatically more active than the wild-type ones, even during the day, when they typically are not feeding. And from these kind of data, as well as many other experiments, what we've concluded is these animals know they're hungry. They know they have not eaten. These are fasted animals. Yet they can't adapt. Again, they're like a runaway train using nutrients and energy sources, even though they don't have them. And indeed, these animals tend not to survive that night period. They seem to die from what we've been told look like hypoglycemic seizures. So this is an example, then, of how this pathway, this nutrient-sensing pathway, is important for the adaptation of the animal to a nutrient-poor state, either as a neonate, as I showed you before, or in this case, as an adult. And recall that probably nutrient scarcity has been the norm for our species and really for more species out there. And so the, the capacity to adapt to nutrient-poor species, uh, nutrient-poor state, is probably one of the most important things that any animal can do. And these RAG-DDPases and this pathway I'm telling you about seems to be critical. Now, as I mentioned, one of the holy grails for us in this study has been to identify the proteins that are the actual sensors of the nutrients. And I'll tell you the progress we've made with amino acid sensors. When we first started this, we assumed there was one amino acid sensor. We were incredibly naive. We have at least now seven proteins that seem to be involved as actual sensors. So the first question you could ask is, how many different amino acids are sensed? This might give you some idea of how many sensors there are. So how many, sensor, how many amino acid sensors? One or many? Well, it turns out if you try to stimulate the pathway of any single amino acid, it doesn't do anything. The pathway is not activated. If you take any combination of two amino acids, the same thing happens. You can't activate the pathway. If you take combinations of three, in particular this combination, leucine, arginine, and lysine, LRK, now something happens. What you're looking at here is a marker of pathway activity. This is the phosphorylation of S6 kinase. And you can see, in the absence of amino acids, there's no phosphorylation. When you add 20 amino acids, there is a nice activation. Combinations of two don't really do much. You get the best you get is about 20% of activity. 
The three give us about 90% of activity if you actually quantitate this. And so from, from these experiments, as well as many others, what we concluded is that there has to be at least three binding sites and likely at three different sensors for these three amino acids. It turns out that this experiment, for a number of technical reasons, underestimates this. And I'll show you at the end that it turns out to be a fourth amino acid that matters as well. So if we go to this slide, none of these proteins are sensors. We tried that. We asked if they bind amino acids. Are their activities regulated by amino acids? They're not. And the first sensor that we found was really the one that accounts for the first type of sensing we found, this inside-out sensing. And that is this protein here. This is a multi-pass transmembrane protein of the lysosomal membrane. It's called SLC3089. It was an unstudied protein when we identified it. And for us, it was very exciting because it was the first protein that had any connection to amino acids. And that is because this protein, despite being unstudied, has some homology to amino acid transporters suggesting that it could actually interact with amino acids. We now know that this is a sensor of intralysosomal arginine. I'm not going to discuss this protein too much here, but in my third talk, this protein is going to play a starring role because it is what led us to the study of ribophagy, the breakdown of, of ribosomes inside of the lysosome. So despite the fact that arginine is very important for regulating this pathway, there was a lot more interest in understanding how this system is regulated by a distinct amino acid. And that is leucine. And the reason for this is partly historical. It's really not based so much on the biology. And that is because there is decades of work, both in animals as well as in humans, showing that leucine has very interesting physiological effects, seemingly through the activation of mTORC1. So for example, it promotes satiety when the hypothalamus senses it more than other nutrient sources. It promotes insulin secretion by beta cells in the pancreas, and it promotes muscle growth. And in fact, that's where there's been the greatest focus on the effects of leucine on muscle growth. In fact, you can go to your local store and buy products that claim to activate mTORC1. They have these somewhat funny names. This is one called CreamTOR. I find somewhat an off-putting name. And what I like about this product is that instead of just sort of focusing on mTOR, if you read the fine print here, it actually focuses in on mTORC1, which is the relevant mTORC1 complex that matters here. And it has a peptide that contains leucine, which is actually how you want to do this, because you want to have slow digestion of, of a leucine-containing protein to release leucine slowly. We've tried many of these products. They actually work, but they don't work any better than simply buying leucine from a, from a chemical uh, vendor. So if we go back to this system, we did not have the leucine sensor, and this SLC39 protein was clearly not the leucine sensor. So what was it? Well, we were studying a complex which is labeled here as Gator2, and this is a very important complex. If you delete it, this pathway becomes inhibited. However, we don't know what it does biochemically, and we still don't know what it does biochemically, but we know it matters a lot. And if you look at this, the arrows here, this is an activator of this pathway. So Lynn and Rachel, the two students who were working on this, had identified this interacting protein, Cestrin. And again, through genetic-like studies, we could show that this was a suppressor of this pathway. And this was interesting. It seemed to be a new component of Gator2. But what really piqued our interest is when they removed amino acids from the media of the cells, cestrin bound much better to Gator2. And when they added amino acids, the interaction fell apart. So that was pretty interesting. Then they said, well, which amino acid does this? And they tested all the ones that were relevant. And the only amino acid that had that activity was leucine. Now it started to become quite interesting. At this point, the field debated hotly whether leucine was sensed as an amino acid per se, as the leucine molecule, versus a metabolic product of the breakdown of leucine, for example. 
these are very difficult models to distinguish. In fact, there was data in the literature supporting both those different models. And now we know contradictory data. Then Lynn and Rachel did what to me is one of my favorite experiments of the last 10 years. What they did is they starved cells of amino acids. This interaction became very strong. They lysed the cells. Now there was a cold lysate, it had detergent, it had EDTA, it had all things that basically shut, there's no cells left. And now they just put leucine into that lysate. And what happened is the interaction broke apart. So at this point, it really couldn't be a metabolic product of leucine because the cells were dead. There was no metabolism going on. And we had to face the fact that either Cestrin or Gator 2 had to have a leucine binding site. There was really no escaping that conclusion. And long story short, it turns out that Cestrin has the binding site and it fulfills all the criteria for being a leucine sensor. We can make point mutations that eliminates capacity to bind leucine and we can eliminate the capacity of cells to sense leucine. We went on to crystallize uh, Cestrin it turned out to be an interesting protein because it turns out to have two halves that are almost structurally superimposable, as shown here on the bottom, despite the fact that we had detected no sequence homology between the, the two of them. Despite the fact that two halves are quite similar structurally, there's only one leucine binding site, and it's on the C-terminal half. And we knew already from structure function type analysis what features of leucine matter. It turned out all aspects of leucine mattered for it to be able to be sensed, which was quite frustrating. But once we could look at the leucine pocket, we could see why. There were two gatekeeper amino acids that allowed it to only bind amino acids. And the pocket, this hydrophobic pocket down there, only really fit the side chain of leucine. And indeed, we can go in and make point mutations in the protein predicted by the structure and prevent it from binding hot leucine, radioactive leucine. And again, we could take these mutants, put them in the cell, and really nicely show that we could eliminate leucine sensing. However, we could do a more cute experiment, I think, that really also pointed to the, the importance of Cestrin as a leucine sensor. This was work that was led by Bobby Saxton, who was a student in the lab, in collaboration with Tom Schwartz, who was, who was co-mentor, who, who was also at MIT. And what he did is he looked at the leucine binding pocket, and he noticed at the bottom there was this hydrophobic residue, this tryptophan. And what he reasoned is that if he replaced the tryptophan with an equally hydrophobic amino acid that was smaller, in this case leucine, he would make this pocket deeper, and now leucine wouldn't bind as well to the pocket because it was too big for it. And therefore, if we now put this mutant back into cells, you may predict that you need to add more leucine to activate the pathway because the affinity of the pocket is not as good. So does this work? Well, indeed, the mutant has lower affinity for leucine, about sevenfold. And this is a little bit of a complicated slide, but it's one of my most favorite experiments along with the other one I told you about, so I wanted to show you what happens. So what we've done here is on the left side, we're looking at wild-type cells, and we're stimulating with leucine, and you can see the half-maximal activation happens somewhere between 20 and 50 micromolar of leucine. On the right side, we have a cell that doesn't have wild-type cestrin, but has this mutant that has lower affinity for leucine. And you can see if we look at the same concentration of leucine, it's not activating. This pathway is not activating that cell. You have to add more leucine. You have to add about ninefold more. So to, this, to us, this was very satisfying. We went for a structure, predicting what a mutation would do, showing that mutation had the appropriate biochemical impact, and then putting it into a live cell and changing the sensitivity of this pathway to leucine. What's also been interesting to do is to go to other species and look at cestrin. And it turned out that some species already have this change in their leucine binding pocket. Most interestingly, flies do. And it turns out that flies have about 10 times more leucine in their hemolymph than we have in their blood. And so it seems the sensor has adapted to the appropriate concentration of leucine for that organism.
Now, one of the things we've become quite interested is where do these sensors come from? What, what are the proteins that they evolve from? In the case of Cestrin, we don't really have the complete story, but if you look at its structure, it's clear this is a protein that evolved from an ancestral bacterial enzyme that was quite small, that got duplicated, and then the two duplicated genes got linked. And that's how we got these two halves. The leucine binding pocket did not evolve from the catalytic pocket of that enzyme. In fact, we don't really know what that enzyme did. It evolved separately, which is also kind of a curious thing. But so these two, these two halves are related, as the structure suggests, despite the low sequence homology. So what we can do then is we can ask, well, where is the leucine binding pocket on that other half? And we know that other half is the ancestral half. That's more related to that old gene. You can see here on the C-terminal half, we can see these key residues, for example, a glutamate and a tryptophan, they make part of the pocket. And we can now go to the N-terminal half, and very interestingly, we can now find, we couldn't see the sequence model, we can find the tryptophan, we can find the, the, the glutamate. And what's really interesting is that there's no free leucine here, the pocket is not there, but we find the leucine is actually encoded within the polypeptide. So one thing that had to happen to make this leucine binding pocket was to move this endogenous encoded poly leucine out of the way. We think this is quite an interesting little uh, tidbit. Now, I mentioned to you arginine sensing. Turns out arginine sensing is quite interesting. In fact, more complicated than leucine sensing. And, and in many ways, I think having more implications than leucine sensing. And one of the things that we knew early on was that cestrin, and there's several cestrin genes, really account for all leucine sensing. And what I mean by that is they account for detecting the presence of leucine but they also account for detecting the absence of leucine. And you could imagine that there are different mechanisms for those two, but cestrins really account for both of those. That's not the case for arginine. You're looking here at wild-type cells, and you can see one of our kind of traditional stimulation experiments. We starve cells for 50 minutes, and now we add arginine for 10 minutes, and you can see this nice activation. When we knock out the arginine sensor I told you about, this is that lysosomal transmembrane protein, you can see we suppress the signaling, but by no means eliminate it. And moreover, we have no impact on the capacity of the system to sense the absence of arginine. Okay? So we knew that there had to be another arginine center. And in collaboration with Steve Gigi and Wade Harper at Harvard Medical School, we identified another protein that bound Gator 2. This was also a protein of unknown function, and we called it castor. It works in a very analogous fashion to cestrin. It binds to Gator 2 in a way that's repressible, by this case arginine, it presumably represses the function of Gator 2, although we don't know what that is. It has no sequence homology to at all. In fact, it has a different binding site on Gator 2, but it works in an analogous fashion. We went on to also crystallize a castor. It turns out to be a dimer, so it turns out to have two arginine binding sites. You can see them here on the other side. And we could also go in and look at these binding sites and see exactly why it liked to bind arginine and not other amino acids. In fact, this sensor is even more specifically, it is more specific to its cognate amino acid than cestrin. And if we really try, we can shove other amino acids into the cestrin leucine binding site. That's not the case here for this amino acid, for, for this sensor. And if we take both that SLC39 as well as castor and we perturb them, we can eliminate arginine sensing. Now, this is another protein that we've been interested in. Where did it come from? And in this case, it's actually easier to understand than in the case of cestrin. And that is because it's very clear that castor evolved from the regulatory domain of a bacterial enzyme called aspartate kinase. Okay? Now, this is not a kinase that phosphorates aspartate when aspartate is incorporated into a protein. It phosphorates free aspartate. Okay? 
And it's part of a metabolic pathway where phosphorylated aspartate is a key intermediate. So here's that pathway. And what turned out to be very fascinating for us is that this pathway makes three amino acids from this phosphorylated aspartate, lysine, methionine, and threonine. And lysine feeds back and binds to the kinase in this regulatory domain and suppresses it, suppresses it. So it's a classic feedback. You're making enough lysine, well, let's not make any more. And so this regulatory domain from which castor emerged, an arginine sensor emerged, was originally a lysine binding domain. Now, of course, arginine and lysine are quite similar. And indeed, we can look in that pocket from this kinase and see exactly the changes that had to happen to convert it from a lysine sensor to an arginine sensor. And so in the evolution of castor, there was some domain reorganization, some change in the specificity, but that gave rise to this arginine sensor. What I find more interesting, though, is if you look at a tree of life and you ask, where are these two genes, the aspartate kinase versus castor? And what you find is they're mutually exclusive. So bacteria, archaea, protozoa, plants, and fungi all have aspartate kinase. Animals, metazoa, have castor. But there's no species that has both of them. So what that tells us is something that I find rather odd. It's not that aspartate kinase was duplicated and then one copy became castor. Rather, aspartate kinase became castor. And in the process, these other organisms lost aspartate kinase. I find this quite interesting from an evolutionary trade-off point of view because animals, by losing aspartate kinase, basically lost the capacity to make three amino acids that are really essential for life. Lysine, methionine, threonine. All animals now have to make those amino acids. They have to eat those amino acids. They can no longer make them. And so, from an evolutionary point of view, does gaining an arginine sensor valuable, so valuable to lose that? Maybe if you lose the capacity to make any essential amino acid, then the cost for losing other essential amino acids is not so high, because after all, now you have to eat large protein sources. So that's an interesting question. So the story that has emerged then is quite a complicated one, where we have, as I mentioned to you at the beginning, inside-out sensing of arginine through this SLC39. We have a number of different cytosolic sensors, also for arginine, as well as for leucine. And more recently, what we've realized is that there's an amino acid that we had missed, quite an important amino acid, and this is methionine. This turns out to be an amino acid that's sensed through a protein we call SAMTOR, which we discovered in collaboration with Steve Gigi and Wade Harper at, at Harvard Medical School. And this turns out to be the first amino acid that's not sensed as the amino acid per se, but rather as a metabolic product of it. In this case, S-adenosylmethionine. S-adenosylmethionine, or SAM, is really one of the most important metabolites in the cell, most commonly used cofactor after uh, ATP. It's a universal methyl donor, and it's used in hundreds of different reactions. So it really does make sense that the pathway would pick SAM, really important for biosynthesis, to be actually detected. What's been very gratifying for me as an MD-PhD student who was interested in medicine, I never ended up practicing uh, medicine, is that many of the genes and complexes that we've identified have now been implicated in human diseases. And here are some examples of those. I'm not going to go through these in detail, except to point out two. One is the Gator-1 complex. This complex is the main negative regulator of the nutrient-sensing pathway. And mutations in it in people have been associated with a number of different cancers. But perhaps most interestingly, they turn out to be the most common mutations in familial forms of epilepsy. These are families where epilepsy runs in the family. This has led to the idea that perhaps we could treat uh, these epilepsies with mTOR, inhibitors, such as rapamycin. Rapamycin is an mTORP1 inhibitor, as well as occasion mTORP2 inhibitor. And indeed, there are now clinical trials 
testing this because GATOR1 losses should activate the mTOR1 pathway. Likewise, they're activating mutations in the RAG DTPases in certain forms of cancer, such as follicular lymphoma. And again, here there's been clinical trials that are being started using rapamycin to treat these diseases. While we've been working on this question of mutant origin and sensing for a number of years, we still do have a number of questions that we have not addressed. For example, why does arginine seem to have two sensors? My, my third lecture will talk about why there's a lysosome sensor, but why there's also a cytosolic sensor is unclear. Can some of the beneficial effects of methionine restriction be explained by this, this SAM sensor called SAMTOR? Methionine restriction is one of the easiest ways to improve lifespan and healthspan in animals. These are diets that have lower amounts of methionine compared to control diets. And could this center have some role in that? Likewise, could we take advantage of some of these sensors that we identified, which after all have small molecule binding pockets in them, could we develop drugs that would trick these sensors into thinking nutrients would, 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 are not there? Would these then mimic a state that's been called the calorically restricted state or the CR state, which has been shown in really countless studies to have beneficial effects, again on lifespan and the overall health of animals? And then lastly, many of the sensors that we've identified are not conserved in lower organisms such as yeast. This makes a lot of sense to us because yeast can make these amino acids, so there's no reason why it has to sense them coming from the environment. And therefore, it brings up the question, what do these organisms sense and how? Do they sense more primitive nutrients that can be then used to generate amino acids? Or do they have completely different sensing mechanisms? We don't know. In fact, we don't really have a sensor for any nutrient in yeast. And this is something that I think the field needs to be able to then do some comparative uh, comparison between these different species. Many people have contributed to this, uh, to this uh, part of the lab. Really, I want to thank Yasmin Sanjak, who's the person who discovered that the RAG GTPases were part of the mTOR1 pathway, and Tim Peterson, who made some of the early observations of the translocation of mTOR1 to lysosome. Uh, Liron, Roberto, and Alejo did some of the early work on inside-out sensing, on the gator complexes, as well as some of the in vivo roles. And really, the students that are listed here discovered most of the other sensors that I, that I, I, I talked about. So Shuyu and Z, SLC39, Rachel and Lynn, the Sestrans and Castor, and Shin and Jose, the, uh, the, the Samtor complex. And then Greg did a lot of work on SLC39. I also want to point out Bobby Saxton in the bottom left corner there. He was co-mentored by Tom Schwartz, who was our collaborator in all the structural biology, and Steve and Gigi and Wade Harper on the identification of, of Castor and Samtor. And thank you very much for your attention and to iBio for giving me the opportunity to, to talk today.